This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 121st edition of the program. Today is November 30th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors who signed up just this last week. So we have Abear71, Adam Hudson, Adam Kennedy, Alex Murphy, Alfredo Maldonado, Carly Sewell, Daniel Smith, Diego Perez, Jeffrey Maddox, G. Scott Raffield, Hector Peralta, Jezza, Jude Ignacio, Kamali Rose, Matt Cholowek, Nicole Hofer, Roberto Cordo, Robin Regstad, Sam Burns, and Tim Haney. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the Humanist Report podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, we've got another net neutrality centric episode. So first, we'll talk about the backlash the FCC received after unveiling its official plan to kill net neutrality. We'll also talk about the propaganda Fox News is doing on behalf of the FCC what one FCC commissioner who doesn't want to gut net neutrality thinks of Ajit Pai's plan, how other Republican FCC commissioners are also lying to the American people, and what Comcast intends to do in order to make millions of dollars once net neutrality is officially dead. Additionally, we'll talk about more Republican shenanigans, including Donald Trump's takeover of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Project Veritas' attempt to save pedophile Roy Moore's failing campaign in Alabama. And finally, in this episode, we'll talk about Bernie's potential plans to run in 2020 and CNN's tax reform debate with Bernie Sanders. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Enjoy the show. So last week, the FCC announced their plans to kill net neutrality a couple of days before Thanksgiving in hopes that we wouldn't notice. But unfortunately for them, we did notice. In fact, the whole internet noticed. And I don't think I've ever seen the internet this fired up over net neutrality. So once the FCC announced the vote to repeal net neutrality, it was trending all day on Twitter. Net neutrality was a huge topic. We also had notable figures on the internet come out against the FCC, including Julian Assange and Kim.com. And in an article for The Intercept, Zaid Jelani explains how even right-wingers are now starting to come out against the FCC's plan to destroy net neutrality. Now also, on Cyber Monday, we had hundreds of the internet's biggest names in the game, including Twitter, Tumblr, Shutterstock, Squarespace, Ting, Reddit, and others, all write an open letter to the FCC urging Ajit Pai to drop his proposal to repeal net neutrality. In fact, opposition has been so loud that even the Comcast-owned NBC News noted how much backlash the FCC is receiving over this move. So theoretically, one would think that since so many people are outraged by Ajit Pai and the FCC's plan to kill net neutrality, that the FCC would just back off because that's what they did in 2014 when they tried to kill net neutrality and we stopped them then because they faced intense public pressure. 
But Ajit Pai isn't like the last FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler. In fact, he's made it very clear that he doesn't give a damn about what we think, and no matter how big of a ruckus we make, he's still going to kill net neutrality. So John Brodkin of Ars Technical reports a senior FCC official spoke with reporters about Pi's anti-net neutrality plan in a phone briefing yesterday and explained why the FCC is not swayed by public opinion on net neutrality. The vast majority of comments consisted of form letters from both pro and anti-net neutrality groups and generally did not introduce new facts into the record or make serious legal arguments, the official from Pi's office said. In general, the comments stated opinion or made assertions and did not have much bearing on Pai's decision, the official said. The official spoke with reporters on the condition that he not be named and that his comments can be paraphrased and not quoted directly. The official noted that many of the comments are fraudulent. He said that there were 7.5 million identical comments that came from 45,000 unique names and addresses, apparently due to a scammer who repeatedly submitted the same comment under a series of different names. The message from this FCC official seemed to be that a huge percentage of the comments can be safely ignored, but the docket is filled with these comments because the FCC took no significant steps to prevent fraud and did not delete even the most obviously fraudulent comments from the record. Allowing the docket to be filled with junk made it easier for Pi's office to argue that the comments should not be seen as a legitimate expression of public opinion. Pi's office has also refused to provide evidence for an investigation into fraudulent comments, New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman said yesterday. Schneiderman said that there was a massive scheme that fraudulently used real Americans' identities in order to drown out the views of real people and businesses. Pi's order, not surprisingly, speaks favorably of research in the docket that supports his claim that broadband network investment fell as a result of net neutrality rules. The proposal then criticizes studies that found the opposite, saying they used methods that are unlikely to yield reliable results or have other problems. Pi also was not swayed by the fact that ISPs themselves have told investors that the rules do not harm their network investments. That's significant because publicly traded companies are required by law to give investors accurate financial information, including a description of risk factors involved in investing in the company. Another expression of public opinion comes in the form of complaints filed by consumers against their internet providers. Yet, the FCC initially refused to release the text of tens of thousands of those complaints. So this article tells us more than anything that really anything we say will not persuade Ajit Pai. He's made up his mind. Actually, his former employer, Verizon, has made up his mind for him. Net neutrality is going to die, and it doesn't matter what us peasants think. It doesn't matter how much noise we make. It doesn't matter how many complaints we submit to the FCC. He's going to kill net neutrality, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And he's an unelected bureaucrat, so it's not like we can vote him out of office or threaten to primary him if he doesn't do what we want. He can kill net neutrality, and there will be absolutely no consequences. In fact, only positive will come as a result of him killing net neutrality, for him anyway, because he's going to make a lot of money when he inevitably goes back to the industry and gets rehired back at Verizon after doing their bidding in the FCC. So he is working for an agency that's supposed to look out for the interests of consumers, and he's doing the bidding of what these companies who want to screw over consumers want him to do. And again, nothing we say or do can convince him. No study you show him can convince him. It doesn't matter.
Nothing matters. All that matters is what a GPI wants and uh, not what we want. So this decision is being made at the behest of internet service providers and the individuals, the three individuals, specifically the Republican FCC commissioners, Ajit Pai, Brendan Carr, and Michael Riley, they're making this decision not because they actually believe that net neutrality is harmful. I know they don't think that. They're making this decision because they know that Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T, they're going to be really nice to them when they leave the FCC. They're going to get their pockets lined. So this is this is so bad. They are subverting democracy at the behest of ISPs. We do not live in a democracy any longer. We live in an oligarchy where only the large corporations and the mega-rich donors have all the say, but our voices mean nothing, and this shows it right here. Since the FCC announced that it would be voting to fully repeal Title II net neutrality regulations on December 14th, well, we didn't hear too much about this sweeping decision on cable news networks. In fact, they were relatively silent about something that would change the internet for generations to come for the worse. However, there was one cable news outlet that was pretty enthusiastic and wanted to talk about net neutrality, surprisingly. Unfortunately for all of us, that news outlet, that so-called news outlet, is Fox News. And they not only gave FCC Chairman Ajit Pai a platform to lie to the American people about his intentions, but they eagerly assisted him in his attempt to deceive the American people. So Ajit Pai actually appeared on a couple of different shows on Fox News. So he was on the Intelligence Report with Trish Reagan. He was on Kennedy's show called Kennedy. And he was also on Fox and Friends with Steve Ducey. And in each of his appearances here, you could tell that the hosts were literally giddy about his desire to destroy the internet. And to demonstrate just how excited they were at the prospect of Ajit Pai fucking up the internet, well, Trish Reagan literally started off the segment by congratulating him. Vita, congrats. This is what you wanted to do. <laughs> well, thanks, and it's great to be with you again, Trish. <laughs> That was the intelligence report, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if you think that Trish Reagan was alone in her excitement for Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda, then you'd be horribly mistaken because Kennedy actually expressed just how exciting his move to ruin the internet really was. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming by. This is exciting. This is exciting. I don't even know what to say. Now, just based exclusively on those two short clips, you already pretty much know how these interviews are going to go. I mean, keep in mind that the media is considered a fourth branch of government. It's an unofficial branch of government because it's supposed to act as a check on government tyranny and government abuse. So rather than educating their viewers about what net neutrality is and why it's important, Trish Reagan, at least, allowed Ajit Pai to be the one to explain what neutral net neutrality is and set the terms of the debate in order to explain why net neutrality is actually bad for the American people when that's wrong. So this is what he claims net neutrality is about. I'm looking at the word net neutrality on our screen right now, and I'm sure people are sort of glazing over. Explain what that is, because you, I think, do this better than anyone, sir. 
Well, thanks. It involves a basic concept of how the internet is governed. Do you want it to be governed by engineers and entrepreneurs, or do you want it to be run by bureaucrats and lawyers here in Washington? Uh, starting in the Clinton administration, uh, there was a, a consensus on light touch regulation. We would let the market, as opposed to micromanaging regulators, decide how it was governed. That changed in 2015 under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And all I've proposed to do is simply return to that bipartisan consensus yeah. that served us so well for 20 years in okay. favor of the market. So President Obama and his team didn't want to see the market at work? Essentially, view? yes. Yeah, after the 2014 elections, he instructed the FCC to adopt these uh, heavy-handed common carrier regulations that were developed in the Great Depression to tame Ma Bell, the telephone monopoly, and they applied it to this very dynamic marketplace. Uh, thousands of internet service providers uh, were now under the sledgehammer of so-called Title II regulation. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that Ajit Pai is being intentionally misleading here. He states that really what net neutrality is about is whether or not we want the internet to be governed by engineers and entrepreneurs or or run by bureaucrats and lawyers in Washington. Now, remember that term because it's going to come up again. But really what he's doing here is he's creating this false dichotomy that doesn't actually exist. What this is really about is whether or not we want the internet to remain free and open and controlled by no one, or if we actually want these mega-rich corporations like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T to be able to control the internet, to censor content, to kill off their competitors, and impose tolls on certain websites. That's what this is about, because the internet currently is free and open. And Ajit Pai is acting as if Title II means that the government is currently controlling the internet, that they're going through all of these websites with a fine-tooth comb and deciding what website lives or dies. But that's not actually true, and he referred to net neutrality as heavy-handed regulation. But, I mean, they're just mandating that internet service providers are not able to discriminate against websites that they don't like. That's it. So he's trying to overcomplicate what should be a simple issue because that's his goal. He wants to muddy the waters in order to manipulate the American people and make it seem as though this invisible hand from the government is really infiltrating the internet and controlling what we see and censoring content when that's not actually the case. Again, the government just says that internet service providers have to treat web content equally. They can't throttle content that they don't like. That's all this is about. But Ajit Pai knows this and he's lying. Now, he also talked about the market as if it's thriving, but really when it comes to internet service providers, there's no market. The big three companies are Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T, and they all have monopolies. So if you don't like that they destroy net neutrality and start charging you certain fees for web packages, then you have no choice because if you cancel, then you're just left without internet. So we don't even have an option if these companies impose shitty policies that we don't like. But Ajit Pai is fully aware of these criticisms that I'm talking about, and he's fully cognizant of everything that everyone who supports net neutrality is saying. He just is trying to ignore what we're saying. However, he did respond to criticism in this interview with Trish Reagan, and she even managed to squeeze in a jab at the mainstream media, as if Fox News wasn't the mainstream media itself, but this is how that went. Well, you're up against some critics, Ajit, uh, including so uh, the, the mainstream media... Uh, Maybe we should just call, call them what they are, the leftist media there. The Washington Post, anyway, writes this today, sir. FCC plan would give Internet providers power to choose the sites <laughs> customers see and use. And they go on to say the job of the FCC is to represent the consumer. Tragically, this decision is only for the benefit of the largely monopoly services that deliver the Internet to the consumer. So tell us why the Washington Post is wrong. 
Well, there's a spectacular amount of misinformation out there, and I predicted this in my Wall Street Journal op-ed yesterday where I rolled out this proposal. And I said, look, there's going to be a lot of anti-market ideology you'll hear about how the Internet is going to be destroyed, how consumers are going to be harmed, and it's simply not true. If you look at the past two years of these heavy-handed regulations, it has impeded investment in next-generation networks. And when I travel the country, when I go to places like Lorenz, Iowa, or Parsons, Kansas, what I hear is that these regulations are preventing smaller companies in particular from spending capital to build out networks to connect Americans with digital opportunity. I hate to break it to you, Trish, but you are the mainstream media. Fox News is the mainstream media, and unfortunately, you guys are the only cable news outlet that's really talking about net neutrality. <laughs> and Ajit Pai hilariously contends that there's a lot of misinformation going around about net neutrality, and he's absolutely right here, but for all the wrong reasons. There's certainly a lot of propaganda, but it's being spewed and spread by you, Ajit, and you're conspicuously using the exact same talking points as the companies that are lobbying to kill net neutrality, like Verizon and Comcast. I wonder why that's the case. It's almost as if you're in bed with them. <laughs> Now, he also claims that net neutrality is hurting smaller businesses especially, but the opposite is true. Without net neutrality, those smaller companies will be the ones that will be harmed the most by this. Just because Google is in favor of net neutrality doesn't mean that it's not going to harm small businesses because Comcast, if they see an up-and-coming website that threatens their model or speaks badly about Comcast, they can throttle that small website and that small website will have no ability to pay whatever toll they try to extract out of that website. So this hurts small businesses and there's this implication that this would actually help small internet service providers. But again, Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T, they all have monopolies, so there are no small internet service providers, Ajit, so you're just lying here again. But don't worry, because according to Ajit Pai, this isn't about investment or giving big companies like Comcast and Verizon complete control of the internet. What this is really about is empowering consumers like you by taking away all of your power. And to me at least, the job of the government is not to dictate how the market is structured or to say who wins and who loses. That's up for consumers to decide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and us consumers have decided that we want net neutrality. But you're not empowering us to make that decision because we told you what we want. Instead, you're going with these Large companies like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T who spend millions lobbying Congress to kill net neutrality, and you're taking that decision away from us. How empowered? Do you feel empowered? Because I don't feel empowered at all, but I don't want to focus too heavily on this interview with Trish Reagan. I actually want to move on to the Kennedy interview with Ajit Pai, because in this interview, he had a lot more assistance lying to the American people about net neutrality. Wouldn't treating internet companies like utilities be like treating cars like horses and forcing them to get shots and wear shoes? Exactly. It's treating a very dynamic industry like one that is much more slow moving. And part of the reason why I've proposed to my fellow commissioners at the FCC to get rid of those regulations is that we want the internet to be governed by engineers and entrepreneurs once again, not by bureaucrats and lawyers in yep. Washington. Okay, does anyone know what the fuck she's talking about? <laughs> because I've got nothing. And furthermore, Ajit Pai said that thing about whether or not we want the internet to be governed by engineers and entrepreneurs or bureaucrats and lawyers. And I feel like I've heard that somewhere. 
Do you want it to, to be, be governed, governed by engineers, engineers and entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs once or again, do you want not by bureaucrats and lawyers in Washington. Washington? Ah, there it is. So clearly Ajit Pai has all of his ISP talking points memorized like a good little Republican stooge because he's making sure to recite the same talking points over and over, word for word, probably in the exact way that internet service providers want him to. But in trying to talk in circles around the subject in an attempt to deceive the American people, he ended up inevitably contradicting himself multiple times. It's it sort of, uh, it's it split in Silicon Valley and you have a lot of tech companies who are actually, uh, they are in favor of net neutrality. They are opposed to this rollback. Why are companies like Reddit opposing this? Well, I think some companies are very worried. Uh, is the internet going to be free and open? Yeah. And the argument I've made is that before 2015, before these regulations were imposed, we had a free and open internet. That's part of the reason why the companies like Facebook and Amazon and Netflix and Google and Reddit yeah. have become globally known names. Uh, going forward, we are going to continue to have a free and open internet, but the question is, what type of regulatory framework should we have? And to me, at least, that bipartisan, light-touch, market-based framework that started in the Clinton administration and served us well for the next 20 years, yeah. it's the one that's best calibrated to serve consumers the best. Yeah, and, and it, it, it seems as though this move in 2015 was very heavy-handed. And, and, and it seemed like they were doing something very egalitarian, making sure that every company, even teeny tiny uh, providers and content providers, were able to have their stuff accessed at the exact same speed. But that's not how the free market works. Exactly. And part of the reason why we've said that these regulations are misplaced is that there wasn't a market failure here. Yeah. It's not like the internet was broken in 2015 and we were living in some digital dystopia. And going forward, we want all kinds of companies, not the startups of the future, to be able to invest and innovate on the web and the best way to do that is to ensure that everybody has the freedom to pursue a business plan that will serve the consumers well. So understand what he's saying here. He asserts that the internet will remain free and open once net neutrality is repealed but when Kennedy says that if larger companies want to throttle the bandwidth of smaller companies, well, that's just how the free market works. And Ajit Pai responded by saying, exactly. Exactly. So he's admitting here that the internet isn't going to be free and open because if smaller websites have to pay to play and they can't afford that, they'll go out of business. So on one hand, repealing that neutrality will make the internet free and open. But on another hand, it won't make the internet free and open, and Comcast, for example, can impose fees on smaller websites and kill them. So, which is it? Is the internet going to be free and open after you kill net neutrality or not? He can't get his story straight, and that's because he's lying. He will say any and everything he needs to say in order to get the American people to go along with his plan to kill net neutrality, but we're not buying it. So, of course, he has to perform this mental gymnastics and talk in circles around the subject in order to get you to believe that what he's doing is in your best interest, but we all know that's not the case. And he also talks about net neutrality as though it's this new phenomenon that we never had net neutrality until 2015, but that's not true. The only thing that changed was the way we got to net neutrality. We simply classified it as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act. 
that doesn't mean that that was the first time we actually got net neutrality. We've had net neutrality. It's been the standard since we had the internet. But what prompted this change was when old rules expired and then Comcast immediately tried to kill off Netflix by throttling them because, of course, they're a competitor. And this prompted the FCC to respond. And this led to them codifying new net neutrality laws that made the old rules permanent. So nothing changed. And if you think it changed, then... You should test it out. Try going to any website you want to. You can do it still, right? Well, that's because the internet is free and open. If you get this message saying that this website isn't included in your Verizon internet service package, then that means the internet is now closed off and it's not free and open. But since none of us see this message, the internet is free and open. And it's always been this way. But he's trying to make it seem as though something changed in 2015. Nothing changed. But in correcting people like Ajit Pai and Kennedy, when they're wrong, I'm inadvertently suggesting that they actually care about the facts, when clearly, they don't give a damn about the facts. These segments are purposefully designed to manipulate the American people. And this is evidenced by the fact that this interview went so far off the rails that Kennedy even suggested that killing net neutrality would lead to faster internet speeds. You gave a, a fantastic speech and okay. you talked about accessing different parts of the spectrum right. that will make uh, the internet even faster. So explain how rolling net neutrality back actually makes the internet faster. So two different ways. Number one, getting these utility style heavy handed regulations off the internet will encourage more companies to invest. And yeah. one of the things we found in this process even is small it's companies? Actually, especially the smaller companies because those are the companies that don't have the wherewithal to hire a bunch of lawyers and accountants to comply with these regulations. They were the ones who told us, look, it's hard enough as it is for us to raise capital and to invest in some of these areas, especially rural or lower income areas. These regulations don't make that business case easier. Mm. The second thing I've argued is that, look, if what you're concerned about is the lack of competition, well, let's talk about that because there the FCC has been extremely aggressive in encouraging satellite companies and wireless and all kinds of new providers yeah. to enter the marketplace. That is, I think, the best way to solve the problem that uh, some of the critics uh, might be concerned about. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because there there are speeds out there that we can't even conceive of now. And like you say, if we get government out of the way, uh, we can access that. Things will be faster. People can make more money. So <laughs> I can't help but laugh because this is so ridiculous. They're trying to convince you that giving internet service providers the ability to throttle websites that they don't like will actually lead to faster internet speeds. You've got to be fucking kidding me. If you believe that, then I've got a bridge to sell you because that is complete bullshit. And Ajit Pai, he also asserted in that clip that, you know, these regulations, these heavy-handed regulations, they make it really difficult for smaller companies to comply with them. One, there's really no smaller companies that offer the internet unless you're lucky. But two, how is it difficult for them to comply? All that net neutrality mandates is that they have to treat all web traffic equally. Net neutrality. So how is that expensive to them? How is that difficult to comply with? It's not. But to focus on their points about investment again, which is important, this same line about how net neutrality supposedly harms investment was parroted on another Fox News show. This is a really good step. So I think when we're talking about net neutrality, one thing to get out of the way is it's kind of an Orwellian term. We're not talking about neutrality. We're talking about government regulation of the internet. That's what net neutrality in the way that it's being used means. 
So this only went into effect in 2015. I, I don't think that for the decades before that, the internet was this terrible wild west where there were abusive practices and consumers didn't benefit. Obviously, they benefited. But you're seeing, since the government got involved, decreases in investment in broadband network infrastructure. That's not great because we do want people pouring money into this. We want a competitive, thriving internet environment. Right. Actually, no, we're not seeing decreases in investment since net neutrality passed, you fucking liar. If you bothered to do a quick five-minute Google search, you would know that we're actually seeing increases in investment. Investment actually increased by 5% since these new net neutrality rules were passed in 2015. And also, she literally claimed that net neutrality is an Orwellian term. Literally, those words came out of her mouth, and she was serious. She implied that those of us that actually support net neutrality really were the ones that's spreading propaganda. But she's saying all of this, and in the same breath, she's implying that net neutrality is this new phenomenon that was introduced in 2015. But again, net neutrality has always been the fucking standard. It just became permanent in 2015. But I mean, I could go on and on all day about this because these are proven liars. I mean, they're lying so much that they're contradicting themselves in the same sentence and they're all using the same exact talking points. But finally, I want to end this discussion about Fox News' attempt to assist Ajit Pai in spreading propaganda and misleading the American people about net neutrality in a clip that perfectly encapsulates the enthusiasm Fox News is expressing about his plan to kill net neutrality. And it's nice to see someone who's in charge of the FCC actually getting out of the way so we can we can focus on making society better because of less government and not just worrying about smut and Janet Jackson. <laughs> no, thanks. I, I come from the view that, uh, look, free markets and competition have delivered far more consumer benefits than preemptive regulation from mm -hmm. Washington ever has. And so we want the private sector to invest. And that means we have to modernize our rules. And uh, as you said, get out of the way and let the private sector uh, invest. Good job, Ajit Pai. You're doing great. Keep it up. Keep fucking over the American people. It's unbelievable. And what they're saying is we need the big government to get out of the business of regulating the internet because the government, you know, they shouldn't be taking over the internet, but instead they're asking for big internet service providers who have the incentive to profit off of you to take over the internet. So they want a corporate takeover of the internet. They think that that's preferable to a government takeover. Well, no thank you. And another thing that Ajit Pai said here is he said that we have to modernize our rules. But you just said that we have to return to the old rules, the light touch regulation that had a bipartisan consensus. And all I've proposed to do is simply return to that bipartisan consensus yeah. that served us so well for 20 years. So which is it? Do we return to the old rules or the new rules? Did we have net neutrality before? Did we not have net neutrality before? Notice that it's really difficult to keep your story straight if you're lying through your teeth. So, and again, I want to emphasize that this is really the only coverage that we saw about net neutrality from cable news. There were some quick mentions of it in the supposed liberal networks um, like MSNBC and CNN. But really, I mean, most of the coverage about net neutrality has been against net neutrality and it came from Fox News. So this is them trying to monopolize the debate about net neutrality. But if you go to the internet, notice that we actually don't agree with what they're saying. So they're trying to manipulate people who don't go on the internet, older people in particular, and get them to think that what they're doing is good for everyone when it's not. So understand that these lies are so brazen and shameless that if you can't see through them just by watching this video without someone like me telling you 
why he's lying, then um, you're not a very astute political observer. But most Americans know that this guy is full of shit and he's lying. And Fox News, they have an agenda. And that agenda coincides exactly with what the Republican Party and their donors specifically want them to do. That's what this is about. So they should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. Fox News is currently doing everything they possibly can to misinform their viewers about the fundamentals of net neutrality. And if you've seen any shows on Fox News, you'll know that Ajit Pai has been making the rounds on different Fox News shows, trying to tell the American people that his plan to kill net neutrality would be the real plan that actually facilitates a free and open internet, when in actuality, net neutrality, the thing he's trying to repeal, is what makes the internet free and open. So clearly, in an attempt to lie to the American people and convince them that his plan to destroy the internet is actually in their best interest, we've seen some downright ridiculous arguments being used to justify his decision to gut net neutrality. But the most ridiculous assertion Ajit Pai or anyone else at Fox News made doesn't necessarily have anything to do with net neutrality itself. Rather, it's about the response Ajit Pai has received from net neutrality advocates. Ajit Pai actually made the assertion that, really, he's the victim because he's received backlash from activists who he's currently victimizing. Apparently, the irony is lost on him, but nonetheless, let's see how he's being victimized by pro-net neutrality advocates. Aim, look at that sign right there. Uh Close up, you can read, a murderer of democracy. That's what these signs from internet activists are calling FCC chairman Ajit Pai. Protesters leaving these signs in front of his house over the weekend telling his children their dad is evil. The latest protests are in response to the FCC's plans to roll back net neutrality rules, but doesn't go, doesn't this go too far? Doesn't it cross a line that they would go to his house? Well, he's joining us right now. Live from RDC uh, Bureau. Good morning to you, Ajit. Good morning. Okay, so it's one thing if uh, people go and pick it in front of the FCC. I get that. But for them to go to your house in suburban Virginia, doesn't that cross a line? It certainly crosses a line with me. I understand that people are passionate about policy, but the one thing in America that should remain sacred is that families, uh, wives and kids, uh, should remain out of it uh, and stop harassing us at our homes. Well, speaking of your kids, they listed your children's name on the signs and said that uh, you were an evil uh, man who murdered democracy. How freaked out were your kids to know that whoever left that there knew who they were? It was a little nerve-wracking, especially for my wife, uh, who's not involved in this space. And uh, that's one of the things I think is very unfortunate about all the vitriol and hot air that's out there, is that if you keep going out there peddling this misinformation, like this is the guy who's going to break the internet and destroy democracy, it's not surprising that some people get alarmed by it. When you say that democracy is about to be destroyed, that the internet is about to be broken, and this is the guy who's doing it, it shouldn't be a surprise, I think, that some people become alarmed and start doing things uh, like harassing me and my family. Now, since people have been so personally targeting you and your family, is there anything inside of you that makes you want to back down, uh, back off some of these uh, regulations that you're rolling back? Or are you going to take a stand and keep fighting? 
Absolutely not. I'm going to steal my resolve. I'm going to keep doing what I think is right. And notwithstanding the fact that uh, it does worry me and my wife and to some extent my kids, at the end of the day, I'm going to stay focused on my job and let uh, my law enforcement, uh, who, which is monitoring the situation, uh, help us keep our family safe. And I would hope that nobody would have to go through this kind of nonsense. Yeah. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, public policy should remain about public policy. And that's what I'm going to be focused on. I hate to break it to you, Ajit Pai, but you are trying to break the internet and destroy democracy because the internet really is the last beacon of hope for our democracy. It's where a lot of grassroots activism transpires. So without the internet, without a free and open internet, you hurt democracy. And notice that Fox News was so anxious to opportunistically portray him as the victim that they saw just one sign in front of his house as evidence that he was being constantly harassed. Give me a break. You are making yourself look very foolish. If you'll recall, the last FCC chairman who tried to kill net neutrality, Tom Wheeler, literally had activists show up at his house and they blocked his car so he couldn't leave to go to the FCC. And since he probably knew that he was doing a shitty thing, he just went back in his house. He didn't go on MSNBC or CNN to cry about how he was the victim. But there you are, Ajit Pai, getting up in arms and pretending to be the victim because one person left a sign in front of your house. Give me a break. This is ridiculous. And of course, the American Conservative Union had to come out and denounce the, quote, personal attacks on Ajit Pai's family, as well as the racist and personal attacks Ajit Pai himself has received. Now, since they failed to provide us with any examples of said bigotry, I'm guessing that they're simply referring to mean comments that Ajit Pai is receiving on the internet. Well, I mean, join the club. When you put yourself out there, you open yourself up to criticism, and you especially invite criticism if you do something as brazen as you're doing to just fuck over consumers. So, give me a break. Nobody feels sorry for you, Ajit Pai. And I love how the right, they're just as quick to use identity politics as the establishment left, if it suits their narrative. Now look, for the record, I don't actually agree with the person who decided to bring his children into this because they are innocent and they're irrelevant to the discussion. But if people actually want to exercise civil disobedience and occupy the FCC, block anyone from getting in the FCC so they're not able to make their vote on the 14th of December to kill net neutrality, then I'm all in favor of that. We don't have to harass you because we're on the right side of history. So taking this one sign that you received in front of your house as evidence that you're being harassed, well, we're not buying it and nobody feels sorry for you because... With the extent of damage that you're doing, you should be lucky that there aren't people outside of the FCC every single day blocking you from going in the building because of what you're doing. I mean, this is going to harm generations of people. So nobody thinks you're the victim. Nobody feels sorry for you. You invited this criticism on yourself when you decided to ruin the internet and go against the overwhelming majority of the American people. So if you think this is harassment, cry me a fucking river because there are real issues out there and real victims and you're not one of them, Ajit Pai. Even though Ajit Pai, as chairman of the FCC, is spearheading the agency's latest attempt to kill net neutrality, he couldn't possibly achieve this goal without the help of the other two corporate stooges on the FCC, Michael Riley and Brendan Carr, and they are just as likely to lie to the American people as Ajit Pai is. So to show you how this is the case, 
newly appointed FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, who also served as legal counsel to telecom companies like AT&T and Verizon, just like Ajit Pai, and also worked previously with anti-net neutrality lobbying firms, took to Twitter to lie to the peasants about the FCC's true intentions, saying, quote, if the FCC were voting to kill the internet, I'd do some shouting, but that narrative is false. I will be voting to repeal the 2015 Title II decision to put back the protections consumers lost two years ago and to ensure Americans enjoy a free and open internet as we did for the prior 20 years. So notice how shameless he is when he brazenly lies to the American people. So in the same sentence, he claimed to support a free and open internet, but also that he would be voting to strip away rules that mandate that the internet remain free and open. And notice how there's this explicit assumption, we've seen this before, about how in 2015, Title II fundamentally changed the way that the internet functions, and that we somehow had a free and open internet, but net neutrality changed that. Well, newsflash, we've always had a free and open internet, and in 2015, we just voted to make those rules permanent. And this is something that will hurt consumers. But he's simultaneously claiming that killing net neutrality will actually help consumers. In fact, someone actually called him on this saying, how does eliminating Title II put back consumer protections again? Title II is what allows you, the FCC, to enforce net neutrality, aka free and open internet, which was only under threat by ISPs litigating and manipulating traffic. Stop misleading people. And he responded saying the FCC's Title II decision stripped the Federal Trade Commission, the nation's premier consumer protection agency, of all its authority, consumer protection, privacy, and data security, etc., over internet service providers. Part of a free and open internet is ensuring consumers get those protections back. So once again, we see him claiming that repealing net neutrality is in the best interest of consumers. And the reason why he really wants the FTC to have control of net neutrality is because they can't enforce net neutrality like the FCC can. So it's a way to say, oh, I care about net neutrality. I just want this agency to be in control of it uh, instead of us. But if you care about net neutrality and a free and open internet, then why not just make sure that you take control yourself and can mandate that the internet remains free and open? Well, of course, it's because he doesn't give a damn about a free and open internet because he's an industry shill that worked for these big companies that lobbied to kill net neutrality. And he also decided to pander to millennials in probably the most cringeworthy way possible, saying, no, the FCC's 2015 Title II rules were not the key to Justin Bieber being discovered online. For better or worse, the Biebs flourished well before the FCC's Title II decision. How do you do, fellow kids? What? Ugh. Unreal. So, in a nutshell, what he's saying here is that he wants consumers to be protected but he's gonna vote to repeal protections that basically make sure that consumers can't be ripped off i mean what type of mental jujitsu do you have to do in your head to believe something so idiotic but i mean we all know that he doesn't believe his own lies he knows that this is a talking point he has to use that was probably fed to him by isps so that way he can effectively mislead the american people but he's not alone because we actually had michael riley who was another republican corporate stooge commissioner on the fcc who surprise surprise also came from the telecommunications industry 
and served as a policy analyst for them in the 90s. So in order to lie to the American people, he actually tweeted out an idiotic right-wing article about net neutrality, claiming it was an insightful piece for internet, we need federalism, not anarchy. The problem is that he doesn't support federalism because in his own repeal plan, it blocks federalism. So The Verge explains the commission intends to block any local laws or regulations that effectively impose rules or requirements that we have repealed or decided to refrain from imposing in this order or that would impose more stringent requirements for any aspect of broadband service that we address in this order. So for example, if Oregon doesn't like that the net uh, neutrality title two protection was just repealed and they want to pass their own net neutrality law so we have net neutrality in the state of oregon well the fcc is saying no you can't do that that's not federalism mike so you're claiming that we need federalism but you're blocking federalism so you're a liar to see that you're lying we just have to compare that tweet to the actual order to kill net neutrality and it's pretty fucking obvious that you are lying through your goddamn teeth right now we actually found out through the reporting of brian fung of the washington post that verizon and comcast were encouraging the fcc to include this provision in the text of their repeal plan and of course like good little stooges ajit pai brendan carr and michael riley listened so notice how when more than 20 million americans Submit comments to the FCC demanding that they leave the internet alone. They ignore us. They pretend like we don't exist. But when a couple of companies say, hey, we want to make sure that when you kill net neutrality, states can't pass their own net neutrality laws. They listen and they implement what internet service providers want immediately. So they're listening only to the corporations. They're not listening to anything the American people want because they are all stooges. They came from the industry and they're going to go right back to the industry once they leave the FCC and they're going to get a huge sign-on bonus. So this is just so angering. They are ignoring us and listening to internet service providers and they're lying to our faces and they don't even care that they're lying. They're shamelessly lying. So as you all know, on December 14th, the FCC will most likely be voting to kill net neutrality. And the situation is so bad that one FCC commissioner who will actually be present for this vote and will be voting against the death of net neutrality spoke out and called on the American people to intervene. That's how bad this situation is getting. So in an op-ed for the Los Angeles Times, FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel states, Wiping out net neutrality would have big consequences. Without it, your broadband provider could carve internet access into fast and slow lanes, favoring the traffic of online platforms that have made special payments and consigning all others to a bumpy road. Your provider would have the power to choose which voices online to amplify and which to censor. The move could affect everything online, including the connections we make and the communities we create. There is something not right about a few unelected FCC officials making such vast determinations about the future of the internet. I'm not alone in thinking this. More than 22 million people have filed comments with the agency. They overwhelmingly want the FCC to preserve and protect net neutrality. At the same time, there are real questions about who filed some of the net neutrality comments with the FCC. There are credible allegations that many of the comments were submitted by bots and others using the names of deceased people. What's more, some 50,000 recent consumer complaints 
appear to have gone missing. In short, this is a mess. If the idea behind the plan is bad, the process for commenting on it has been even worse. I think the FCC needs to work for the public and therefore that this proposal needs to be slowed down and eventually stopped. In the time before the agency votes, anyone who agrees should do something old-fashioned. Make a ruckus. Reach out to the rest of the FCC now. Tell them they can't take away internet openness without a fight. So, for an FCC commissioner to speak out and say, please stop us from killing net neutrality, this goes to show you just how detrimental this plan would be to the internet. It would destroy the internet as we know it. And I've said this before, I'll say it again because I think it's important. Once you vote away internet freedom, it will most likely be more difficult to get it back. Now, she also brings up something that's really important that I didn't know about. She states here that 50,000 consumer complaints appear to have gone missing. Well, where are they? Clearly, since they've gone missing and the FCC and all of these internet service provider cronies are doing everything they can to suppress comments that support net neutrality, they probably are hiding this away, so that way nobody knows just how unpopular this plan is. But, I mean, the jig is up. We know just how unpopular this plan to repeal net neutrality is. Because one study found that when you take into account just the individually submitted comments that weren't using, you know, forms to submit their complaint to the FCC, 98.5% were in support of keeping net neutrality. So, the overwhelming majority of the American people want the FCC to leave the internet alone, but Ajit Pai is not listening. Now, I think that this is especially an important message coming from Jessica Rosenworcel, because like Ajit Pai, she wasn't necessarily always the biggest advocate for net neutrality, because back in 2014, she actually went along with Tom Wheeler's plan to set up fast lanes. But when people who support net neutrality spoke out and said, wait, you're basically getting rid of net neutrality, well, they were forced to change course, and the FCC, led by Obama's appointed uh, chairman, decided to actually put in place strong net neutrality protections because we demanded that he do that, and also President Obama put pressure on him to do the same thing. So if someone like Jessica Rosenworcel, who was never the biggest ally to net neutrality to begin with, tells you that these changes would be disastrous, then... I'm inclined to believe that these changes would be disastrous. Now, speaking of Tom Wheeler, the individual who started off as an opponent to net neutrality but ended up becoming an ally after we twisted his arm enough, he actually spoke out against Ajit Pai's plan to destroy net neutrality. And even though I'm not the biggest fan of him since we had to put so much public pressure on him to save net neutrality, what he said here makes a lot of sense. Well, you just have to listen to that explanation that Chairman Pai just had. Let's, let's think about this. Transparency is the solution. So um, all that is necessary to do something evil is to tell you that I'm about to do something evil. That doesn't make any sense. And, and then, okay, what do you do once you have that information? Two-thirds of the households in America have no other choice as to where they're going to get their internet. So this is, to, to go out and claim that somehow this is uh, some kind of consumer protection is, is a fraudulent representation. They say their proposal is more fair, more pro-consumer. What makes you think it's, a, it's actually the opposite? Well, I mean, in the name of consumer protection, they say they're not going to protect consumers. 
in the name of better regulation, they say they're going to turn it over to the FTC. But yet, an FTC commissioner, Commissioner McSweeney, this afternoon tweeted that even if they do that, the FTC doesn't have any authority. They're just running away from their responsibilities. The big concern here is how this impacts the haves and the have-nots, uh, the folks who could increase future innovation, be responsible for future innovation. Mm -hmm. How would this impact the haves of the moment, the Googles, Facebooks, Netflix? Well, I think the important thing here is how does it affect everybody and their ability to get on the internet and for consumers to reach providers and for providers to reach consumers. You know, what we're seeing here is the cableization of the internet. <clears throat> if you like your cable company and the way in which they choose which channels you can see, and the way in which they continue increasing their prices, you're going to love what happens under this repeal because suddenly the people making the rules are the networks and the consumers can't survive without the networks and the service providers can't survive without the networks. So how can we hold ISPs accountable? Well, that's what we did in our open internet rule. We said, hey, there's some bright line rules that you've got. No blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization. You've got to provide information uh, to the consumer. And we will put a referee on the field to look at what your continued actions are as technology evolves and throw the flag if necessary. And what the Trump FCC is doing is just turning its back and walking away and giving the, the network companies everything that they have asked for. That's exactly it. He called Ajit Pai's lies fraudulent. And I think that's really important. And again, I'm going to emphasize this. I sound like a broken record, but this is someone who wasn't always the biggest fan of net neutrality. He literally came from the industry just like Ajit Pai did. He was a lobbyist for Comcast and Obama decided to appoint him. And initially, he got in there and tried to do away with net neutrality. But the difference between Tom Wheeler and Ajit Pai is that Tom Wheeler actually listened to the American people. When we put pressure on him to back off of his plan to kill net neutrality in a roundabout way, he actually listened to us. Ajit Pai is not doing that. And Ajit Pai is continuing to lie. And the other Republican FCC commissioners, Brendan Carr and Michael Riley, are continuing to lie to the American people. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth, and what they're doing is really transparent. So the fact that they are trying to kill the internet, but they're still maintaining that what they're doing would facilitate a free and open internet, it's just a downright offensive to me. So we do have to do what Jessica Rosenworcel says. We have to intervene. So anyone who can get out there and protest the FCC's vote in front of the building, you are absolutely fighting to save the internet. Now, that effort might fail, but the fact that you're out there in the first place is commendable. So anyone who can get out to the FCC to protest, please make your voice heard because clearly they're not listening to us when we submit comments for the internet or call or email Ajit Pai or tweet to Ajit Pai. So you need to show up and let him know that you exist, you support net neutrality, and you do not approve of the FCC's plan to repeal Title II net neutrality regulations.
So net neutrality isn't even dead yet, but companies like Comcast, the third highest spender of net neutrality lobbying in the country, is already planning to profit off of the death of net neutrality. Now, this shouldn't surprise anyone, but just how quickly they're moving is a little bit surprising to me because I thought they would have been a little bit more subtle because they don't want to arouse too much suspicion and piss off too many people, but they don't care. They are hitting the ground running as soon as net neutrality is repealed. So in an article for Ars Technica, John Brodkin explains that Comcast is already hinting that they'll be incorporating a plan for paid fast lanes as opposed to throttling. So it seems like they're going to get their feet wet before diving in. So rather than throttling websites that they don't like, they are going to introduce fast lanes. This is what the FCC tried to do in 2014, but we stopped them because this still violates the principle of net neutrality. So here they are telling us that we're going to test fast lanes out and it's going to make them a lot of money. And when that works for them, then they're going to probably try throttling. I mean, this is not going to happen all immediately, but nonetheless, this will all most likely come to fruition within five years. Now, John Brodkin reports that for years, Comcast has been promising that it won't violate the principles of net neutrality neutrality regardless of whether the government imposes any net neutrality rules that meant that comcast wouldn't block or throttle lawful internet traffic and that it wouldn't create fast lanes in order to collect tolls from web companies that want priority access over the comcast network this was one of the ways in which comcast argued that the federal communications commission should not reclassify broadband providers as common carriers a designation that forces isps to treat customers fairly in other ways the Title II common carrier classification that makes net neutrality rules enforceable isn't necessary because ISPs won't violate net neutrality principles anyway, Comcast and other ISPs have claimed. It's funny how they're still lobbying against it, but anyways. But with Republican Ajit Pai now in charge at the Federal Communications Commission, Comcast's stance has changed. While the company still says it won't block or throttle internet content, it has dropped its promise about not instituting pay prioritization. Instead, Comcast now vaguely says that it won't discriminate against lawful content or impose anti-competitive pay prioritization. The change in wording suggests that Comcast may offer paid fast lanes to websites or other online services such as video streaming providers after Pi's FCC eliminates the net neutrality rules next month. With no FCC rules against paid fast lanes, it would be up to Comcast to decide whether any specific prioritization deal is anti-competitive. So yeah, this is literally the least surprising news ever. Who was one of the first companies to violate net neutrality? It was Comcast. So I don't know if you all remember this, but I remember this back in 2014, Comcast was throttling Netflix. It was very apparent because all of a sudden you couldn't get through a single episode without a buffering symbol. And it really, I mean, a couple of times I just gave up. Now, this didn't happen all the time, but you know, it was subtle. You definitely noticed it. And it turns out Comcast was throttling Netflix, who's their competitor. And also once Netflix paid Comcast a fee, all of a sudden their internet speeds improved and they were faster than ever. So Comcast, they are lying. And when they say that they're not going to block or throttle content, 
they're not signing a contract with us. They're just saying that right now so that way we don't make too much noise about the repeal of net neutrality, but we all know exactly what's going to happen. So they're currently still, I believe they have some order signed until September of 2018, so they probably can't do anything until then, but best believe that they're going to move pretty quickly to start rolling back net neutrality. Now, again, it it will probably be subtle. I don't think they're going to do this right away, but they will do this. They'll start rolling out new cheaper internet plans with limited options, so you get access to Facebook and Twitter and social media, and they'll call this maybe the communications package and offer this for $20 a month, and then they'll start offering other packages. Well, if you want to add on to that, you can add video for another $5 a month, and it's just the beginning. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine all the negative consequences that will come to fruition after net neutrality is repealed. But I do know that we need it because in companies without net neutrality, in countries without net neutrality, like Mexico, the internet looks awful. It looks exactly like TV packages look in the United States. So this is not surprising, but understand that when Comcast does this, we have to be vigilant. So what Comcast probably knows is that once the FCC does vote to kill net neutrality on December 14th, and they're almost certainly going to do that, short of a miracle, Comcast knows that the attention will be shifted away from the FCC and onto them, and they know that people will start to complain the minute they see any fuckery. So Comcast is going to be very subtle, but they're still hinting, hey, we're going to offer fast lanes. How great would that be for the consumers? Look, net neutrality is important, and these companies that are lobbying to kill net neutrality, like Comcast, of course they're going to violate net neutrality. So again, this is the least surprising news ever, but we still have to be aware of what they're doing because it's wrong, and we have to put pressure on them to stop, because if we can't stop the FCC, then we need to make sure that companies like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T know that we're not going to tolerate any throttling or paid prioritization. So as you all know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a government agency that monitors predatory payday lenders and big banks, and it essentially tries to stop them from ripping off consumers. It serves as a watchdog. Now, ever since this agency was created in 2010 with the passage of Dodd-Frank, the Republican Party has tried to dismantle it. And seeing that Donald Trump is a big Wall Street sellout like the rest of his party, well, he couldn't wait to get one of his goons in there to rip it apart from the inside out. In fact, that's exactly what he did. So once the former CFPB director Richard Cordray resigned, Deputy Director Leandra English automatically became the new acting director and would remain in this position until Trump names a replacement. However, Trump did something that's actually pretty weird. He decided to name an acting director, and that individual is Mick Mulvaney, who is currently Trump's director of the Office of Management and Budget. Now, again, we all expected Trump to name a permanent new director, but naming an acting director is just odd. And since he did name an acting director when the CFPB already had an acting director, well, it made for a really awkward predicament when both of them showed up to work on Monday morning. Do you believe you have legitimate authority? Yes, 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 I do. 
There you go. That's White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney a short time ago reporting for work as acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a man who once called the bureau a, quote, joke. Here's the first picture of him in the CFPB office as director. And a major battle is being waged right now over whether President Trump had the legal authority to appoint Mulvaney to that position. So clearly, Donald Trump is so anxious to tear apart this agency that he couldn't wait to just name a permanent director like he was already going to be able to do. He decided to appoint his own acting director, which is just strange. So political breaks down what happened that day and why it was so odd. So Lorraine Wollert reports two acting directors of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau showed up for work Monday. Day, trading memos and warnings as a political showdown threw the embattled agency into confusion. White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, President Trump's choice to temporarily lead the bureau, arrived at around 7.30 a.m. and settled into the CFPB director's office where he read briefing books. His challenger for the job, CFPB Deputy Director Leandra English, was also in the building. English, former director Richard Cordray's hand-picked replacement, sent the staff an email greeting shortly before 8 a.m. and signed it with the bureau's top title, acting director. Mulvaney quickly fired back with a memo instructing staff to ignore any directions from English. I apologize for this being the very first thing you hear from me, he wrote, and invited employees to the bureau's fourth floor for donuts. The jousting was part of a legal morass engulfing the agency after Cordray, its first director, abruptly resigned on Friday and handed the reins to English. While consumer advocates and Democrats fight to preserve Cordray's legacy and the fledgling bureau's independence, business lobbyists are using the mess to push for a reboot of the agency. Regardless of who prevails in the current fight, Trump is expected to name a permanent director in the coming weeks or months, making arguments over the acting director moot. Now, to show you why Donald Trump was so quick to name Mick Mulvaney as the acting director, well, it's evident when you look at what he did on the first day. So, according to Reuters, on the first day, Mick Mulvaney said that there would be a 30-day freeze on hiring at the agency and no payments from the CFPB's civil penalties fund for that amount of time as well, except as required legally. All new regulations would also be frozen, he said. So what he's trying to do is tie the agency's hands, and when Donald Trump's permanent director gets in there, you can bet that he's going to do the same thing. So Leandra English, you know, when she saw Mick Mulvaney show up, she kind of took a step back and said, what the hell? This is my job. I'm the acting director. If you want to replace me, then name a permanent director. But this went to court and she lost, of course, by a Trump appointed judge. And now Donald Trump does, in fact, have the authority legally to keep Mick Mulvaney there. This is an agency designed specifically to protect consumers from these predatory companies that want to rip the American people off. They profit off of ripping off consumers and defrauding us. And the Republican Party, knowing that their donors, who are these same companies, don't want this agency to exist, they couldn't wait to get in there and handicap this agency and rip it apart. So, if this doesn't prove that the Republican Party is a sellout, then nothing will. To say that they are right-wing or even far right-wing is incorrect. 
it's a misnomer because this party is off the spectrum. They don't have any real underlying political philosophy or ideology. They only serve their largest donors that contribute to their campaigns. And it's just sickening because they wear their corruption on their sleeves. They don't even give a damn about how bad this looks because they know that they can count on Democrats not inspiring enough people to come out and vote for them. So they know that all they have to do is count on their regular right-wing base to vote for them and they'll win and they can still continue to screw us over. So I found this whole debacle really embarrassing for Republicans, but at the same time, um, I know that they're not embarrassed because they have no shame. So uh, we already know that Trump's pick for a permanent director will be a disaster, just as big as a shill for the industry as Mick Mulvaney. Um, but, you know, just with how quick he appointed an acting director, it shows what he wants to do. He wants to screw us over. And that's why Republicans are attacking this agency, one of the few agencies in government that still looks out for us. So obviously, Roy Moore's Senate campaign in Alabama is in trouble because woman after woman keeps coming forward with allegations that he either pursued them or sexually assaulted them when they were minors. Now, if you are a Republican and you don't care about the fact that he's a pedophile and you still want him to win and you're willing to play dirty and you're a literal fake news outlet like Project Veritas, what do you do? Well, here's what you do to save his campaign. You hire a woman to go to the Washington Post with false allegations against Roy Moore, and then you expose how the media is pushing false allegations against Roy Moore. That way, you call all the other allegations against him into question. And that's exactly what James O'Keefe and Project Veritas did. But thankfully, the Washington Post actually decided to be diligent this time and vetted this source and realized that she was a plant from Project Veritas. So Sean Boberg, Aaron David, and Alice Kreitz of the Washington Post explain a woman who falsely claimed to the Washington Post that Roy Moore, the Republican U.S. Senate candidate in Alabama, impregnated her as a teenager appears to work with an organization that uses deceptive tactics to secretly record conversations in an effort to embarrass its targets. In a series of interviews over two weeks, the woman shared a dramatic story about an alleged sexual relationship with Roy Moore in 1992 that led to an abortion when she was 15. During the interviews, she repeatedly pressed Post reporters to give their opinions on the effects that her claims could have on Moore's candidacy if she went public. The Post did not publish an article based on her unsubstantiated account. When Post reporters confronted her with inconsistencies in her story and an internet posting that raised doubts about her motivations, she insisted that she was not working with any organization that targets journalists. But on Monday morning, Post reporters saw her walking into the New York offices of Project Veritas, an organization that targets the mainstream news media and left-leaning groups. The organization sets up undercover stings that involve using false cover stories and covert video recordings meant to expose what the group says is media bias. James O'Keefe, the Project Veritas founder who was convicted of a misdemeanor in 2010 for using a fake identity to enter a federal building during a previous sting, declined to answer questions about the woman outside the organization's offices on Monday morning shortly after the woman walked inside. The woman who approached Post reporters, Jamie T. Phillips, did not respond to calls to her cell phone later Monday. Her car remained in the Project Veritas parking lot for more than an hour. So this isn't really surprising to me. If you are familiar with James O'Keefe's history, 
This shouldn't surprise you. So basically what they did was they were presumably trying to entrap, I guess you could say, the Washington Post since they were the ones that published the original sexual assault allegations against Roy Moore. And let's be honest, the Washington Post fucks up a lot. <laughs> Sometimes they don't vet their sources before publishing articles. So he probably thought that he could get them, but this backfired tremendously and it revealed that Project Veritas is in fact a fake news organization and they were doing all of this in an attempt to defend a pedophile and help said pedophile still get elected. How embarrassing for Project Veritas. And see, I actually got criticized in the past because I didn't talk about supposed revelations from Project Veritas before about Hillary Clinton and supposed proof that Democrats were paying protesters to disrupt Trump rallies. And that was because my bullshit detector was just going crazy. And it turns out I was right. Um, we have to question everything. And when shady characters who have a history of lying and deceiving people like James O'Keefe come out with supposedly news-oriented organizations, we need to be extra cautious because they have an agenda. And Project Veritas' agenda here, it's very clear. Uh, not only did they want to um, make the Washington Post look bad, which, I mean, a lot of times, Washington Post does that themselves. They have some reporters who do a good job, but for the most part, they're a corporate news outlet, much like Fox News, for example. But Project Veritas... We can now all verify this is, in fact, a fake news outlet, as I suspected, and people who were astute enough to know about James O'Keefe's bullshit history suspected. It's fake news. They do these stings. Um, they cleverly edit clips to obviously take people out of context. This is what right-wingers have to do because they don't have facts on their side. They don't even have a compelling argument, so they have to lie and deceive people to get Americans on their side. But us progressives, we don't have to resort to lying and shady deceptive tactics like Project Veritas because we have the truth on our side and the American people overwhelmingly side with progressive policy ideas. So James O'Keefe, I mean, if this doesn't discredit him, then nothing will, because he's already been discredited for doing the same thing in the past. So if people take Project Veritas seriously after this, then I don't know what to say, because this is a literal fake news outlet. The Hill recently spoke with prominent Democratic Party officials and insiders in order to gauge who they thought was the best presidential contender to go up against Donald Trump in 2020. And to my surprise, they actually ranked Bernie Sanders as number one, the best suited to go up against Donald Trump in 2020. And the only reservation they expressed about Bernie Sanders' chances was his age. But this is also an issue that would plague Joe Biden, who is their second highest ranked contender and probably Bernie's biggest competition in 2020. Now, this list also includes the likes of Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, an anti-Medicare for all coward and so-called progressive Sherrod Brown, and Wall Street sellout Deval Patrick. But for Democratic Party insiders, this includes members of the party, strategists. For them to rank Bernie Sanders as number one, that's really important uh, because they probably see that the writing is on the wall. Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. And when you look at all of his policy positions, they have a majority of support from the American people. So I think that's important. Now, keep in mind that they're not implying here that they want Bernie Sanders to win. All that they're stating is that they think Bernie Sanders has the best chance 
of beating Donald Trump in 2020. So again, this doesn't mean that they're going to rig the primary in favor of Bernie Sanders. I wouldn't want them to do that. I want a fair fight. But this does mean that obviously Bernie Sanders has the best chance of beating Trump. But regardless of who they think is best suited to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, it probably doesn't matter in the end because they'll most likely just try to shove some unpopular neoliberal corporatist down our throats again anyway. But the good news is that Bernie Sanders does seem to be preparing for another presidential run. And he's making a lot of moves that conspicuously point to another run. So according to Gabrielle De Benedetti of Politico, he reports that Bernie Sanders is taking steps to address long-standing political shortcomings that were exposed in 2016 ahead of another possible presidential bid in 2020. From forging closer ties to the labor movement to shoring up his once flimsy foreign policy credentials, the moves have provided Provided the senator inroads into party power structures that largely shunned him in favor of Hillary Clinton last year. They've also empowered the progressive icon to harness his newfound political power and help Democrats fight President Donald Trump's administration. Sanders has been working closely with figures who are close to the party establishment he's long railed against, like American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten, and he's been meeting with international affairs experts such as Bill Perry, a defense secretary in the administration of President Bill Clinton around a series of speeches designed to define his international vision, one year after running a campaign heavy on domestic policy and light on the rest of the world. As Sanders monitors his post-2016 political group, Our Revolution, and the Democratic National Committee's reform efforts, he has also slightly expanded his tight circle of 2016 aides. Campaign manager Jeff Weaver has returned to the senator's political payroll after helping build Our Revolution, which still hosts Sanders' campaign email list and provides him a nationwide foothold. To allies on the outer rings of Sanders' political circles, the flurry of moves looks like the beginnings of a full-fledged political operation in contrast to last year's relatively bare-bones organization. Now, this article also explains how he's been meeting with veteran policymakers, and he is visiting really important early primary states like Iowa and New Hampshire, and he's doing a lot of different things to build his national profile, which is all really important, and to prepare in advance is important because even though Bernie Sanders now has the advantage of name recognition or at least has a comparable level of name recognition to Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, we're still going to have an uphill battle on our hands because oligarchs in this country are not going to be so willing to relinquish power and allow Bernie Sanders to win. In fact, when Bernie Sanders started to surge in 2016, we saw people like Michael Bloomberg, a billionaire, threaten to jump in the race as an independent if Bernie Sanders won the nomination in order to basically steal the presidency away from Bernie Sanders and potentially Donald Trump because he was surging at the same time. So I don't want to focus too much on 2020 to the detriment of 2018 because we've got to be prepared to kick ass in 2018. But we've really got to talk about these things and be prepared for anything they might throw at us because we know that the elites in this country are not going to just allow Bernie Sanders to steamroll all of his opponents in 2020 if he is able to do that. I mean, they're going to throw a lot of things at us and all of these obstacles that they put in front of us, we've got to think about it. We've got to be prepared to address them. So this is really important. And in Bernie Sanders' quest to prepare for 2020, specifically, he has got to make inroads to the African-American community. Now, this was not a strength of his in 2016, admittedly, because he came from Vermont, a mostly white state. Now it's the case that when you actually poll people and look at demographics, his biggest group, 
of support comes from African-American women, which just so happens to be the most loyal constituent of the Democratic Party. So that's important, but he also really needs to build relationships with African-American leaders and civil rights leaders, and he really needs to show that he doesn't just care about them for electoral purposes, that he actually knows about their cause and cares. And I do believe that Bernie Sanders cares, but the point is just proving to them that he really is on their side and is an ally. Um, but again, the extra name recognition that he now has is going to help him with that. Also, he needs to reach out to the gay community because for whatever reason, Everyone who is part of the LGBT community, I mean, th the human rights campaign, they all just fell over themselves to endorse Hillary Clinton. You see celebrities that are gay endorse Hillary Clinton, which makes no sense to me because Bernie Sanders has a history of standing up for LGBT rights, even when it was career suicide and political suicide when he was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. So these are things that I really want him to work on, and he's got to take a strong stance when it comes to foreign policy. He can't even hint at intervention of any sort. He's got to come out against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He needs to unequivocally condemn the drone war, and he needs to take a stand for Palestinian human rights and stop tap dancing around the issue. Now, look, I don't mean to criticize Bernie Sanders here, even though people that we admire should be criticized because Bernie Sanders is one of the few politicians that is inclined to listen, listen to our criticism. But the point in bringing up these weaknesses is to make Bernie Sanders a stronger candidate. I'm not trying to rake Bernie over the coals and tell you he's a shitty candidate. He's a strong candidate, and he will be in 2020. I do believe that. But if he really is going to win and come out strong, I think these are weaknesses that he should address. But look, the good news is that everyone sees now that the writing is on the wall. Bernie is the number one best choice to beat, Bernie, uh, to beat Donald Trump as of now. And look, he is, it's true. So I'm glad that he's going to run and this is a good story, you know. Um, so look, let's just keep in mind that 2018 is coming up first, but we've got to prepare for 2020 because again, we're going to see some shenanigans from the Democratic Party establishment, their donors. We're going to see some, maybe some DNC fuckery, rigging and bias. We don't know. We have to prepare though in advance, which is why I do think it is important to talk about 2020, even though initially I didn't really want to focus on it too heavily. I do think it's important, though. So, yeah, um, hopefully he addresses all of these weaknesses and is much stronger in 2020. CNN hosted another debate featuring Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz, and this time they were both accompanied by Senators Maria Cantwell and Tim Scott. And at the last tax reform debate, I think it was clear that Bernie Sanders destroyed Ted Cruz. He absolutely wiped the floor with him. This time, I still think Bernie Sanders probably won and was more persuasive. However, I don't think it was as thorough of an ass-beating as it was last time. And this is because, as I'm watching this, I'm trying to pretend as though I don't follow politics and I'm just an average viewer. And when you listen to Bernie Sanders and juxtapose what he's saying against Ted Cruz and Tim Scott, I mean, even though they are lying through their teeth and they're lying about everything and they're trying to obscure facts, they are good debaters. This wasn't necessarily Ted Cruz's best performance, but I think that Tim Scott was actually pretty persuasive at trying to basically make it seem as though this tax plan is something that it isn't. With that being said, when you put Bernie Sanders' message against Tim Scott's, I think that Bernie Sanders is more persuasive because he has facts on his side, real facts on his side. He cites objective studies and not right-wing think tank studies. 
And also, he's the most popular politician in the country, so he already cultivated that trust that people like Ted Cruz and Tim Scott just don't have. So I think that Bernie Sanders, in pointing out specific ways in which this tax plan screws over the middle class, I think he won. Now, I'll include a link to the full debate down below because I can't cover the entirety of the debate. It was an hour and a half. But I do want to showcase parts of the debate to you that did stand out to me. So basically, the debate starts out with Bernie Sanders just laying out the facts. This is a tax plan that will raise your taxes. If you are a single mother, if you're part of the middle class, your taxes will inevitably have to go up. And this led to a pretty heated exchange between him and Tim Scott. According to the Tax Policy Center, which is a nonpartisan tax organization, 87 million middle class households would see their taxes go up by the end of the decade. Now, interestingly enough, what they did in their bill is they made the benefits that go to working people in the middle class temporary. But the corporate tax breaks are permanent. So I'm afraid to have to tell you, not only will your taxes likely go up, but when these guys are finished with cutting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education, and other important programs for working families, it is likely you and your kid will be in worse shape. Well, patently false, number one. Let, listen, we, we can debate the issues, but we can't debate the facts. That's right. Here's what the Joint Committee on Taxation says. In her, in her income bracket, her tax will go down, not up, down. Well, speaking of the Joint Committee on Taxation, on average, what they say is the Senate Republican tax plan raises taxes on American families earning $75,000 or less by the end of the decade. That's what they say. Here's so the, I'd, I'd, bring in Senator, I'd like to bring in Senator Cruz and Senator Jack, Cantwell. One time. Uh, I think the word I'm looking for is hogwash. Really? Yes, absolutely. Then you better talk to the joint. Well, let me just. So the thing about Tim Scott is that what he's saying all sounds nice, but they don't talk about all the negative components of this tax plan that will inevitably screw over the middle class. And when Bernie Sanders points out facts that don't coincide with the narrative they're trying to push, well, then what do they do? They pivot to attacking Bernie Sanders' character. So we had Ted Cruz assert that Bernie Sanders just wants to raise your taxes. That's all he wants to do. Bernie was very explicit. He was very candid. He said he wants to raise your taxes. He wants to raise everyone's taxes. That's the difference. The Democrats want to raise your taxes. To provide and what the Republicans are, man, what the Republicans are doing country. is cutting Senator. your taxes. You're right. They want to raise your taxes, and then they want to spend your money. We want to cut your taxes and let you spend your no, money. You want to cut taxes for the billionaires. Maybe you'll no, no, we're talking about cutting taxes this right one, there. Let's, but here let's, are the facts. Here are the facts. Sixty percent of the tax breaks the you are giving your friend. Coming from your campaign contributors, the 1%. Now, that wasn't the only time that Ted Cruz tried to claim that Bernie Sanders wants to raise taxes on the middle class. And what he's saying is technically true, because if you do have a Medicare for all system, you raise taxes on the middle class and everyone else to pay for that. But what he's not telling you is that in raising taxes on the middle class, they're still going to have more money in their pocket because they're not going to be paying for their monthly health insurance premium. Now, Ted Cruz actually included a quote that Bernie Sanders said last time where he just takes Bernie Sanders out of context. So he quotes Bernie Sanders out of context to make it appear as though he wants to raise your taxes when he's not explaining what Bernie Sanders said. Now, he actually did this and Bernie Sanders called him out on it. And this led to a complete beatdown 
of Ted Cruz by Bernie Sanders because he said, if you're going to use my quotes, then use them correctly. This is how the exchange went. Here's what Bernie said. This is a quote. So, yes, to answer your question, Jake, if we can explain to people, yeah, you're going to be paying more in taxes. Now, he said it's going to be a progressive tax system. The wealthy are going to pay their fair share, not the middle class, not the working class, but everybody will pay some more. So you're a single Ted, mom working, he says you, you're going to pay some more. You're a small business owner, he says hey, you're going to pay you, some you, more. And the reason is there aren't enough millionaires see, and billionaires no, to pay is, for all the socialism that Bernie and the Democrats want to give away. This is why politics in America stinks. <laughs> Thank you. Because you, that's right. Because you forgot <laughs> you the other half of the sentence. And what the other half of that statement said is, yeah, you may pay more in taxes if you're in the middle class, for a Medicare for all single payer health care bill, but you're not going to have to pay your private premiums to an insurance company and you will be better off. Now, Ted stays up nights worrying that somebody's going to pay more in taxes. Apparently, you don't worry that there are families in America paying fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year for insurance to private companies. Well, you know, Bernie, That's okay for you. Uh, you know, Bernie, but I, I do worry about more. it. Yeah, well, and, you and, didn't and, give my whole point. But, but Obamacare point, caused that. My, o- no, Obamacare, Obamacare did not cause so, that. So, so Bernie, let, 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 a, a couple uh, of simple facts. But one more point. Let me Go just ahead. say, all right, and I'll give it back to you. Next time you quote me. Give the whole quote. Now, what's funny to me is that after Ted Cruz was lambasting Bernie Sanders for wanting to raise taxes on the middle class, Ted Cruz received a question from the audience about salt, which is one thing that does help members of the middle class. It helps the upper middle class as well. But basically, removing salt would harm members of the middle class. And Ted Cruz admitted that, yeah, removing salt would result in a tax increase on the middle class. This tax reform bill also includes a large middle class tax increase because it eliminates the state and local income and property tax deduction, otherwise known as the SALT deduction. Do you believe hiking taxes on the middle class is in line with conservative principles? Well, thank you for your question. Thank you for your support in the primaries last year. Absolutely not. And you've highlighted what is my single biggest concern with with the tax bill as it is now. Now, there were some other moments in the debate that were pretty embarrassing for Ted Cruz and also Tim Scott. But first, when it comes to Ted Cruz, him, along with other Republicans, they insist that Democrats are being obstructionist and that they're not trying to help them create this legislation. But the fact of the matter is that Republicans are shutting Democrats out of the process. Democrats, I mean, there's a lot of corporate Democrats that would be willing to go along with raising taxes on the middle class in order to pay for corporate tax cuts and tax cuts to the wealthy. I mean, look at Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Manchin. They might vote for this anyway. And yet, they're claiming that Democrats don't want to work with them. All we have to do is look at the corporate Democrats like Ron Wyden and Joe Manchin and see that that's bullshit. That's false. So Bernie Sanders explained exactly what happened. Democrats were not included in, in this process. They were shut out. There are a number of opportunities for our friends on the left to come to the table, but they have said no thank you. Actually, there are zero opportunities for progressives to come to the table. You've, you've missed because the last Because you guys, no, you've missed the last Because you locked the door. Because you made a decision to go forward with reconciliation. You have 52 votes in the Senate. You need 50 plus the vice president to pass it. And that's what you did. You decided from day one that you would not involve Maria, myself, or any other Democrat in this process. 
Now, if you had, what would have happened is, yeah, we would have raised the earned income tax credit. We would have dealt very significantly with child care. But you know what? We would not have given 60% of the tax breaks to the top 1%. They made a political decision that they were going to do it alone, hoping that they would get 50 votes. Whether they will or not, we will find out soon enough. But this was never an effort to involve Democrats in the process. We're gonna now, one part of the debate that was really embarrassing for Tim Scott was when he randomly tried to assert that this tax plan doesn't want to repeal the estate tax. Are you serious? Republicans have been trying for decades to repeal the estate tax. Donald Trump certainly wants to repeal the estate tax because this specifically would benefit his own family. So what are you talking about? So he says, oh, well, that's not in the Senate plan. It's in the House plan. But Bernie Sanders made him look like a fool when he asked Ted Cruz. And of course, Ted Cruz said, yeah, we are in favor of repealing the estate tax. Our plan does not repeal, does not repeal the estate tax. That is a false statement. In terms of the estate tax, the House bill does repeal the yeah, estate we're, tax. We're in the Senate. We're, we're in the Senate, it, though. I'm more than aware of that. But oh, good. I think it's one to make sure. Double, double check myself. conference committee. But I read Ted's stuff. Ted, you agree with repealing the estate tax. You've said that many, many times. A absolutely. All right. There you go. So that wasn't a very good look for Tim Scott because it made him look like the liar that he is. He was basically exposed as someone who was trying to uh, obfuscate the truth and change reality to suit his narrative. Now, that wasn't the only time that Tim Scott was embarrassed because he was just fact-checked left and right. I mean, he kept trying to perpetuate these false claims about this tax bill, and each time he made an assertion, it was debunked. So, for example, there was a CEO that actually fact-checked Tim Scott and he destroyed the idea of trickle-down economics in general. So, watch a CEO utterly embarrass Tim Scott. In my experience hey. as a CEO at a public company, I can tell you that our investors would have been delighted at any tax cut that improved our profitability. But it would not have led to more hiring or an increase in wages. It just wouldn't. It never came up. What do you say to employees of companies like mine and many millions of others who won't get higher wages as a direct result of lower corporate taxes. But the corporate investors and the executives, like myself, will get a very large benefit. Economists on both sides of the aisle agree that the corporate tax is a burden shared by the employees of the company and the consumers of those products. So Tim Scott is literally arguing here that higher corporate tax rates actually hurt the employees as well. And if we cut the corporate tax rates, that will help employees because the reasoning, I'm guessing, is that if these companies don't pay more in taxes, they'll use that extra revenue and give that to their employees. Really? Is that what you think? I was born at night, but not last night. Because we all know damn well that those CEOs of these large multinational corporations like Walmart, they're just going to pocket that money. They're going to take home bonuses. They're not going to give a damn about their workers. And we have evidence for this because this is what they do every time you guys cut their taxes. You just exacerbate the already huge problem that is income and wealth inequality. So, I mean, there were these types of moments that just made Tim Scott and Ted Cruz, of course, look like fools. But, I mean, they weren't the only ones that looked really dumb because Maria Cantwell had a really bad moment in the debate because, essentially, Tim Scott kept bringing up 
corporate Democrats that agree that the corporate tax rate in America is too high. And that prompted Maria Cantwell to defend Democrats who are right wing, who think we should cut the corporate tax rate. And she basically said, we're a Big Ten party. And the argument she made was terrible. You know, Ted, I really thought about this issue of you trying to divide the Democrats. But, you know, we're a Big Tent party. And there's room for Bernie and there's room for me. The difference is you guys keep trying to isolate your party. It used to be there was everywhere from Susan Collins to Jeff Sessions. But instead, you guys took on people like Dick Luger. And guess what? We got Joe Donnelly. And then you put somebody out there in Missouri and we got Claire McCaskill. So you keep narrowing your tent and I'm fine with our big tent. So the way that she is characterizing both parties, I do think that she's correct. The Republican Party, as they become increasingly right wing, they narrow their base. And as Democrats move further and further to the right, they are expanding that tent. Um, and it's not just that they're, you know, they're expanding it and they're trying to encompass center right and far left. They're not. They're moving away from the left and not even the far left, just the left in general. So in creating this, quote, big tent, they've created a tent that's big enough to include corporate Democrats who are right wing, who are moderate Republicans. And that's why they're losing. So in basically calling out corporate Democrats that want to slash the corporate tax rate, Tim Scott shouldn't be putting Maria Cantwell in a defensive position. What she should say is, oh, well, thank you for telling me about these corporate Democrats like Ron Wyden that want to slash the corporate tax rate. I'll remember to primary them. But of course, I mean, I'm, I'm kidding myself to think that she would even think in these terms because Maria Cantwell, she is a corporate Democrat herself. She might not be as right wing as some Democrats like Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp, but she's no progressive. Now, one thing that really irked me throughout this debate was how they talked about we have this, this really high corporate tax rate and we're just not competitive. And finally, I believe it was like halfway through, Bernie Sanders finally called them on this bullshit. For the record here, uh, Tim, I think it was, talked about the uh, corporate tax rate being 35%. Yes. That's correct. That is the nominal rate. But, Tim, you understand. Yes. I understand the effective rate. That's, that's right. right. That there's yeah. a great deal of difference between the effective rate, as I understand that according to the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, large profitable corporations pay just 14% of their profits in federal income taxes. There's a big difference between the nominal rate of 35% and what they pay. And what they end up paying, by the way, is somewhere near what they pay in the OECD. The only point that I wanted to make is you agree that the effective tax rate is not 35%. It's close to 14%. I would, I would suggest that that is also true throughout the world and our competitors. So when you look at our position versus our competitors, when Ireland's at 12%, when the UK is heading towards 17 or 18%, when the OECD average is around 22%, the reality of it is, at 35%, even when you lower it down our, to our effective rate, when those countries do the same thing, we find ourselves at a strong Senator Sanders, we have to leave it there. Okay. Thank you. So when you're talking about corporate taxes, you can't have a genuine discussion about it unless you point out differences between the nominal and the effective tax rates. And that's what Republicans, they try to talk about nominal tax rates and how high it is, but they don't tell you about how these large multinational corporations take advantage of loopholes that make them pay, in some cases, zero dollars. Now, Tim Scott actually put forward a pretty good objection to what Bernie Sanders said here. He said, well, when you look at countries like Ireland, who have a 12% nominal rate, well, their effective rate still comes down and 
that makes them more competitive than us. But what he's arguing for is basically allowing them to pay next to nothing. Our nominal tax rate is 35% and corporations pay less than 10% and sometimes $0 in many instances. So he's basically arguing effectively for the elimination of the corporate tax rate. You can't do that unless you raise taxes on the middle class. So I wish Bernie Sanders had more time to call him out because that's basically what Tim Scott is arguing for. He's arguing for zero dollars in corporate taxes. And guess who's got to pick up that burden? That's going to be you and I. That's not going to be the rich. So these these politicians here on the stage, all but Bernie, they're so disingenuous and it frustrates me to no end. Now, another thing that frustrated me was the way that Ted Cruz and Tim Scott dodged the question, essentially, when a graduate student asked why they're willing to raise taxes on grad students and basically make it so they can't complete their schooling. The average graduate student at my university currently makes $15,000 a year. If we were to be taxed on the tuition benefits that we receive, many of us would be paying almost a third of our salary toward federal taxes. At other universities with higher tuition rates, the situation is even worse. When the Senate and the House bills head to reconciliation, this question is for both Senators Cruz and Scott, really. How will you guarantee that graduate students don't bear the burden of new corporate tax cuts? Will you commit to keeping new taxes on graduate tuition waivers out of the final plan? I'll just tell you that it's in the House plan. It's not in the Senate plan. I believe that the Senate plan will emerge out of the, the conference being the plan that we go forward with. So the good news is the answer is yes, number one. Number two, when you look at the long-term opportunities for a student coming out of college, when our unemployment rate's at 4% and our, growth, our economic growth is at 3%, your wages are going up. This is good news. It's a good time to be you. I agree with you. We shouldn't be taxing tuition benefits. It's not in the Senate bill, and I'm, I'm quite confident it won't be in the final bill. Yeah, so she didn't get a substantive answer to the question that she asked. And understand, when she said she makes $15,000, when she takes home $15,000 after her college pays for her tuition and whatnot, that's actually one of the higher rates because when I was a grad student, I was grateful to have funding. They paid for my tuition, but the take home for me, get this, $300 a month. Now, I would end up making more money, so it was more along the lines of $800 because other professors would have me grade exams. They'd have me grade research papers, and I'd get paid about $12 to $15 an hour, depending on the professor, for doing that. But if I couldn't get those extra jobs that I was able to pick up, it would be $300 a month base. So she had one of the higher programs. So if you tax us, we get basically nothing. So that's why I was so frustrated when they didn't answer her question. They said, oh, that's not in the Senate bill. Not good enough. We don't know that you're not going to settle to get this bill through because we all know that your donors want you to deliver on corporate tax cuts. So if this doesn't get removed from the Senate version, are you still going to vote for it? I think we all know the answer is yes. And they didn't give her a good enough answer. So that was irritating to me just because I have personal experience and can <laughs> I can attest to the fact that this will absolutely push graduate students out of schooling. If we were taxed on what they consider revenue, which is our college paying for tuition, you just couldn't finish school. It's that simple. Now, I want to end this discussion of the debate appropriately in Bernie Sanders' closing statement because he lays it out here pretty clearly. This is what's at stake. We live in a moment in history where we have more income and wealth inequality than any time since the late 1920s. Top one-tenth of one percent now owns as much wealth 
as the bottom 90%, top 1% earns 52% of all income. The idea that 60% of the tax benefits in the Republican plan would go to the top 1% is beyond absurd. Our job is to grow the middle class and the working class of this country, not give more wealth to the people on top. Our vision is to create an economy and a government that works for all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. This legislation should be defeated. We should then sit down and develop tax policy that works for working families, not wealthy campaign contributors. So in the end, I would highly encourage you to watch the full debate. It was only an hour and a half. I can't get to everything, but look, the Republican Party, since they don't have facts on their side, they have to lie. They have to obfuscate. They have to tap dance around the truth and facts in order to make themselves look good. They have to lob these personal attacks against Bernie Sanders, call him a socialist as if that's a bad thing, in order to make themselves look good. But the fact remains that the Republican Party is pushing vociferously for these tax cuts because their biggest donors, the Koch Network, claimed that if they don't get this done, they will cut off their access to the piggy bank, and Republicans want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So they are doing this. They are pushing relentlessly for this bill to appease their donors, and that's why they're not going to vote against this bill if taxing grad students isn't taken out. They're not going to vote for Tim Scott wouldn't vote against this bill if the estate tax is still repealed. It's bullshit. They're doing this because they're corrupt and they're doing it to appease their donors. And I think overall, the average viewer will see that. But at the same time, they're good at their craft and that craft is lying. So the American people, you know, they're going to have to decide. But regardless of what conclusion they come to, uh, this bill will be voted on, and even if it may not have support from a majority of Americans, I don't even know if a plurality support it, it may very well pass anyway. Because the elites and the special interests, they get what they want in this country. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode and you've heard me talk for this long, you're truly, you know, <laughs> you care about the issue. So thank you all so much. Uh, as usual, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors because you guys help the show not just to survive, but to thrive as well. We could not do this without you. Uh, so thank you all so much. Uh, I'll see you next week. Have a great day.